In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service. Our text is found in John chapter 1 and verse 14. John 1, verse 14. Let me read it again. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our text this morning is short, yet the truth it contains is so important that many great theologians down through the centuries have called this verse the most important verse in the New Testament. Now that's a great claim to make, and because of that, we must pay careful attention to this verse. John 1.14 has played a leading part in the production of the early Christian creeds of the church, especially on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the person of Christ. So what do we learn here in this wonderful verse? Well, we learn that our Savior really did become human. 
in order to save sinners. That he really was born, and like us, he grew up and matured. He experienced what we experience. Tiredness, weariness, pain, suffering, rejection. He submitted to hard circumstances. He died. He rose again and ascended to heaven. And yet, from the moment he was born, he was both God and man, and still continues to be God and man in heaven above. Two natures in one person, the person of Christ. That's a lot of truth, a lot of theology, but very important. So this verse really describes what we call the incarnation. Now that's a big word. It comes from the Latin incarnare, which means to become flesh. But before we delve into our text this morning, we need to backtrack a little. If we are going to understand our text, we need to look at the passage where our text is found. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel are different from the rest of John's Gospel. They're different in the style in which they're written. They're different also in content. The rest of John's Gospel is mainly stories about what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. But the first 18 verses, the first half of the chapter, is really different in that it speaks about things like life and light and glory it's quite different in its style. John is introducing us to the person of the Lord Jesus, whom he's going to speak about throughout his gospel. We usually call the first 18 verses the prologue, or the introduction to the gospel. And here John introduces themes that occur many times throughout the gospel. Themes like light, life, darkness, truth, glory. In order to understand verse 14, we need to start at verse 1. John begins his gospel using a strange term to describe the Son of God. Let me read verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John calls the Son of God the Word. The Greek term is logos. And we want to look first of all at this word logos, its meaning and its significance. The Greek word logos has to do with communication. O.M. called one of its ships logos. Mickey and Kathleen served on it, I'm pretty sure. And they called the ship logos because the ship was going around the world communicating the message of the gospel to the people where it went. And so they called it logos. In the ancient world, 
the Greek philosophers, they were familiar with this term logos. But they had a very different understanding of it. The Greeks understood it as the principle of order and reason that was evident in the universe. Of course, they didn't connect it at all with Jesus. But they did recognize, the Greeks recognized, that there was order and design in the universe in which they lived. And so they called it logos. The Jews also knew this term logos from the Old Testament, where the word of God was God's messenger, God's messenger in creation because the universe was created through the Logos, through the Word. The Word is also spoken of in the Old Testament as God's messenger in revelation, bringing the truth to the people and to the world, and also God's messenger in rescuing God's people. We see it in the Psalms, it's often spoken of. He sent forth his word, the Logos. He sent forth his word and the heavens were created. He sent forth his word and he healed them, and so on. So John was telling both Jews and Greeks that the Logos had arrived. The word who was God from all eternity took on human flesh and became one of us. The Word communicated the mind of God to humanity. For John, the Logos is not a principle like the Greeks thought it was. But to John, the Logos is a person, the living person of the Son of God who has come into the world and who has become flesh. And so this morning, we're going to look at verse 14. Now, it is undoubtedly one of the great verses of the Bible. And we cannot really understand who Jesus is if we are to ignore this verse or fail to grasp its meaning. So I'm going to look at it phrase by phrase. Because each phrase, in fact, sometimes each word, is teaching us something important about Jesus. So let's read it again. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're going to go through the verse. There are seven sections altogether in it. We won't spend a lot of time in each one, but I want you to follow me through it as we look at each part. And the second part says, the Word became flesh. This is the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation, that God became human. There's nothing like it in any other world religion. There's nothing that even comes close to it. In other religions, the gods are remote and far away. They are distant and removed from the affairs of humans. 
They live far away in the high mountains, fighting each other for, for supremacy. But in our faith, in Christianity, our God, the creator of the universe, becomes flesh, becomes one of us, takes on our frailty, our weakness, our vulnerability, our fears and our sorrows. The eternal Son of God, the Word who was with the Father from all eternity, became human. On a specific day in the history of the world, which we celebrate at this time, on a specific day, he took on human nature, he who was eternally God. Now he becomes human. He had always possessed the nature of God, but now at this point in history, he takes on a nature he never had before, human nature, and he becomes flesh. And from that point on, the Son of God has two natures. He did not give up the nature which he had, being God, but now he takes on human nature. Now he is two natures in one person. And when he rose from the dead and when he ascended to heaven, he did not stop being human. No, he continues to be human, to be man and God in heaven above. That's what we call the incarnation. Next, we want to look at that word flesh. The word became flesh. The Greek word for flesh is sarx, S-A-R-X. And the medics among us will be familiar with medical terms derived from this Greek word sarx, such as sarcoma, meaning a tumor. Sarx, or flesh, signifies human nature in all its weakness and its vulnerability. When Jesus became man, he did not become some kind of superman when he took on flesh. He became an ordinary human like us. He did not even take on the human nature that Adam had before the fall. That human nature was free from all infirmity and weakness. No, Jesus took on human nature as it existed after the fall, prone to tiredness and weakness and frailty and injury and sorrow. His human nature was like ours in every way, except that it was without sin. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that I'd like you to look at. It explains this very well. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, we read these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And then listen to this in verse 17. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So he was made like us in every way. The human nature he took on himself was ours. And he is able to help us in that human nature when we are tempted. And then again, in Hebrews chapter 4, we see the same thing. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And then the writer encourages us to come to him. He says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he took our nature upon himself. We see the humanness, the vulnerability of Jesus throughout his life. We see it also in Gethsemane, where he faced the prospect of his sufferings with anxiety and with apprehension. We see him exhausted from travel as he sits by the well in Samaria. We see him weary and tired in the boat as he sleeps while the storm brews on the lake. He became flesh like us so that he might die for us and so that he might support us in our fallenness and weakness. The hymn writer said, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He became flesh. But then we move on in the third place to look at the next phrase. He made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. The word John uses here means to pitch a tent. It could be translated, he tabernacled among us, because that was the old word in the Old Testament for a tent. And the word tabernacle immediately makes us think of Israel in the wilderness, where God came down and pitched a tent among his people. God was really present with his people in power and glory. God was not remote from Israel. No, God was truly present with them in the desert. And that's why there were strict rules about approaching the tabernacle. Because God was present and he was holy and anything sinful would be burned up by his presence. God truly lived among his people in Old Testament times. But now John is saying, this same God who made his dwelling among his people in the days of Moses has now become flesh. He not only makes his dwelling among us now, but he takes our very body, our very nature, our very flesh, and becomes one of us, not just in some kind of apparition on one occasion, but he becomes one of us in the flesh for 33 years. We see the magnitude of what our God did in becoming flesh for us. 
But let's read further in our text in verse 14. John says, We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Again, this statement is rooted in Old Testament history. God's glory had been seen before in Old Testament times. Moses saw the glory of God in the days when God dwelt in the tabernacle. It had a profound effect upon Moses. We read that Moses' face shone when he saw the glory of God. He was lit up by the glory of God. And the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face when it was shining because God's glory had lit up his face. It was awesome. When Solomon built the temple, the ark of God was brought into the temple. And in 1 Kings 8, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests were not able to enter and perform the ceremonies because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But John, here in our text in verse 14, John is saying that this is happening all over again. Speaking for himself and James and uh, Peter, the three favorite disciples, he says, we have seen his glory. We have seen that same glory, that glory which was in the tabernacle and in the temple. We have seen that same glory, but we have seen it now in the face of a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God. He has lived in the flesh among us, and we saw that glory again and again. We saw it, for example, when Jesus turned the water into wine at the miracle in Cana of Galilee. At the end of John chapter 2, which records that miracle, John says, This, the first of Jesus' miraculous signs, he performed in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. He revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. That same glory was seen at the wedding feast. In what Jesus did, in his power and in his generosity. The same was seen at the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus created lunch for 5,000 plus people in abundance and generosity. The same was seen when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The glory of Jesus was seen right at the beginning of John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus. Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of God will be glorified through this through what happens to Lazarus, even before he had even gone to the village where they lived. Jesus predicted that his glory would be seen, and it was in that amazing miracle. He told Martha, did I not say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? But it may be that John saw the glory of Jesus best when the three disciples 
Witness Jesus' transfiguration. Listen to what Peter says as he describes this event. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So when John says, We have seen his glory, perhaps that was what was uppermost in his mind when the light of heaven shone upon Jesus on the mountain while the disciples were with him. Indeed, you could say that the glory of Jesus was even seen before Jesus ever came to earth because Jesus told the Jews that Isaiah saw his glory in the temple when the Lord appeared to Isaiah. So the glory of Jesus is very great and very prolific in the gospel record. John could truly say, we have seen his glory. But do you know that Jesus wants you to see his glory? He wants us to see it in all its fullness in heaven above. When he uttered his great high priestly prayer, in John 17. This is what he said. I want those. Remember, he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, that they may may see my glory. And if you believe in Jesus this morning, then that is one of the great things that you have to look forward to, to see the glory of the Savior in heaven above, where he is glorious. John had many visions of his glory in Revelation, and he fell down at his feet. In Revelation 1, we have that beautiful description of the glory of the Son of God. John could say, we have seen his glory. But I want to ask you this morning, have you seen the glory of Jesus? as you listen to his word, as you read the stories of his life and his teachings in the Gospels, as you look at his miracles, or as you stand and look at the cross where he died for your sins, have you seen his glory? There is no greater vision, there is no greater experience than to see the glory of Jesus. He's not just a figure in the history books. No, he's the Lord of glory who came to earth and took flesh and died so that we might experience his glory and that it might change our lives and bring us into union with himself. But let's move on in our verse. The fifth place we see John describes this glory as the glory of the one and only Son. The glory of the one and only Son. 
In fact, the word son is not in the original. It's the glory of the one and only. Again, it's a phrase that's full of meaning and full of significance. John uses it to show us that Jesus is unique. There is only one of him. There is no one else and nothing else in all of history that equates to Jesus. He has no equals. He has no rivals. We may be called sons of God by adoption because God has received us into his family of his children. But God has only one son, one son who is God, one son who is divine, one son who is equal with himself in power and glory, and that son is Jesus who became flesh. The phrase one and only is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to an only child who was greatly <coughs> an only child who was greatly loved. In Luke chapter 7, for instance, when Jesus raised the widow's son in Nain, the widow's son was described as her one and only son. Similarly with Jairus' daughter, she was said to be his one and only daughter. When the demon-possessed boy was brought to Jesus, he was said to be the one and only son of his father. And so in each case, the term one and only is meant to signify not only that there were no others in the family, but that the one and only was dear to the parent, greatly loved, precious, in the same way as the Son of God in heaven above was precious to his father. Then we come on to number six, the, la the phrase almost at the end. The one and only who came from the Father. Jesus was sent into the world from the Father. Jesus himself was acutely conscious of this. More than 15 times in John's Gospel, Jesus states that he came from the Father. He told Nicodemus that he came from the Father. And again and again, he told the Jews, especially those of the Pharisees who wouldn't believe in him, he said, I have come from the Father and I speak from the Father. He was God's word, God's logos, the final word to humanity. He was the climax of God's communication with the human race. As the writer to the Hebrews again tells us in the very opening words of his book. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken. Present tense, he has, or perfect tense, I should say, perfect tense, an action completed. He has spoken to us by his Son. And if you're not interested in Jesus, then God has nothing more to say to you. He has said it all through his Son, his one and only Son, who came from the Father.
Now for our final two words in our text. The one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John uses the word grace to describe Jesus, full of grace. And grace is one of those great New Testament words. It actually translates an Old Testament word. There's an Old Testament word in the Hebrew, it's called hesed. And the word means loving kindness. You find it many times in the Psalms. And grace is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word loving kindness. And grace is all about generous giving. Jesus was full of generous giving as he went about his ministry. When he turned the water into wine, he didn't just make a few bottles. He did it lavishly, abundantly, making something like 120 liters. He was full of grace. When he fed the 5,000, there was plenty for everyone, 12 baskets left over, full of grace. When he raised Lazarus, it was a miracle full of grace. Lazarus had been dead four days, and he was raised before the very eyes of Jesus' worst enemies. A miracle full of grace. And so all the gifts of Jesus to a needy world were generous and extravagant. He did all things well. He was full of grace. But the fullness of his grace is seen on the cross, where he freely gave himself for our sins, where he suffered in the flesh for our sins. Amazing grace. Have you experienced this grace? Don't let another Christmas pass until you know that Jesus is full of grace and you have received that grace from him. But John also says, Jesus is full of truth, full of grace and truth. The word truth has the root meaning of reliability, dependability. These days, we don't know what to believe. As we watch our news bulletin, we don't know if it's really true or not. We don't know who to believe. We hear a lot about fake news. What can we believe? How can we know what is genuine, what is not? Well, we know from the Old Testament scriptures that God is a God of truth. He keeps his promises and his threats. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is truth. He told the truth. He claimed to be the truth. Again and again, he predicted events. His betrayal, his denial, his death and resurrection, he predicted them long before they happened. And yet, all of them came true exactly as he predicted. Jesus is full of truth. He is the Word who became flesh, the Word who lived among us, who died for us. Have you seen his glory? Have you received his grace? Do you believe his truth? What a Savior. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for Jesus, our wonderful Savior. We say with the hymn writer, how great thou art. How great is your love. How great was your condescension to leave the glory of heaven and the worship of angels and to come to a cruel, evil, filthy world and there live and die among us. Oh, Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Oh, Savior, we thank you that you came and took our sins upon your own body on the cross. We pray that our hearts may be filled with worship and praise for you this morning, because truly you are the Word who became flesh, who lived among us, and we have seen your glory. Amen. Our closing song is from a borrowed stable.